Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We found him. Going to Paradise Island. I finally arrived in Paradise. We had found the mysterious Klaus von Wendel. Crammed into a small dinghy boat, we set sail to his own private island. Paradise Island, as he called it. We arrived at what looked like an elaborate floating junkyard. It was huge. It's like Waterworld. <laughs> Going to go to the stern and pull us in. Okay. A few mobile homes were strung together on top of an enormous floating barge. It was honestly hard to process what I was even looking at. So what is this place? This is a piece of artwork. <laughs> this is my home, my playground, my shop, all of those. Klaus had agreed to meet under one circumstance that we brought him a case of his favorite beer, Beck's. Cheers. 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 I'm happy here. There's very little joy left, you know. There's very little upbeatness left. There's very little dancing going on. Most people are doing this. He made a gesture of typing on a phone. That's the only thing they know how to do. That has taken over real heartfelt communities and uh, there is a deadness going on in human interaction. I'm not withdrawing from it. I'm just protecting myself from insanity. Klaus has been right here on Paradise Island for the past several decades. At a young age, he fell in love with the ocean. And for the better part of his life, he's lived on some sort of boat. He's now 80 years old, but he still remembers vividly the time he spent in Rainbow Village. Rainbow Village was like a non-functioning hippie camp, but not as good as the hippies were. The hippies sat their shit together pretty much, while that group was basically floating and being high all the time. There was heroin, there was everything. They were a little too scary for me, the group up there at night, you know, because there were needles and heroin going on. 
Klaus had lived on a boat, just a short distance from Rainbow Village itself. On the morning after the murders, Klaus woke up early, and he discovered a bag sitting on the veranda of his boat. When I saw the bag, I said, oh shit. It had what looked like a serapi in there and a driver's license. And I didn't know whose it was. Why would somebody leave the driver's license, you know? Inside the bag was a serapi, which is a long blanket-like shawl, and a driver's license belonging to an unknown male. Not too long after Klaus discovered the bag, a man appeared on his boat, coming to retrieve it. This blonde guy comes and says, I left my bag here, I was in a hurry, and uh, the gut feeling vibration I got from him was not positive, let's put it that way. It was in a way outrageous that he would leave something on my property, you know? Around what time? Ooh, I would say about nine-ish, ten-ish, something like that, before noon. At that point, did you know anything had happened to Mary and Greg? No. Was there police tape up or anything yet? No. So there was no investigators there or? No. What did he look like? Like a California blonde-haired kid. Apparently he was hanging out with the uh, Grateful Dead group. He was a, a wheeler-dealer type guy. And it seemed like that he wanted to get rid of that bag, but be able to retrieve it. That's the way I think it went. The blonde kid definitely was on the run. Definitely seemed to be on the run. Why? He just put out the vibes. He was in a hurry and, you know, didn't want to communicate. Do you remember what the driver's license looked like? Yeah. Was it the same person or a different person? I think it was from a different person. Yeah. I don't know whose driver license it was. Could have been one of the victims. Klaus suspected the driver's license may have been Greg Niffins. That tall blonde man who came to retrieve the bag that morning sounded familiar. I had one picture of Bo back in the 80s that was given to me by Anne, so I showed it to Klaus. Is that him? Yep. Mm-hmm. You sure? Yeah. Yeah. I had a bad feeling about that guy. The police officer, I think his name was Elliot. And when I saw Elliot coming to the scene, I think I stopped him because we were on, on good terms. That's when I told him about the bag. But he didn't want to look at it. So the reply I got was that they got their man and they didn't pursue it. They thought they had their man, you know? That was quick. Yeah, it, and that really surprised me too. They told me that they had a suspect and Elliot sort of said, you know, we think it's international. Could have been anything, could have been drugs, a deranged mind, who knows? 
people are crazy. Weston, and he told us that you were by the fire that night. Who told? Weston. That I was? Yeah. At the fire? Yeah. No. At Rainbow Village? Yes. No, I w wouldn't, wouldn't catch me up there. Weston is trying to get me to the fire, eh? that bastard. <laughs> no, no, you're not going to catch me in a devil. <laughs> I'm a man of the world. I'm a truthful man. They have a saying in Germany, you cannot stand on one leg alone, so you have to have two beers. <laughs> I think about it in the understanding that the whole of everything is a matrix and is interconnected. The quantum physics and mechanics are at work. <laughs> and they play a role in uh, what's going on. And sometimes it keeps on churning, you know. All of a sudden, you guys are involved, so the Matrix might be working on karma. <laughs> Some stuff just doesn't want to die. Where the whole thing went wrong was right when the shots were fired and who was there and who wasn't. I think that's where the answer lies right up there at that moment, at that time. And if there isn't anything there that anyone can say or saw, or if you're hiding it, the blame was leveled right there. They leveled it at International, and the other guy went away. They grab a guy and <laughs> the robber gets out the back door. And I think he, he shot him and booked out of there, dropped his bag off at my place, went somewhere, came back the next day, went up there and uh, to the village again before the cops were there and did something, whatever, came back and picked up the bag and hit the road. Klaus seemed pretty confident that Bo and Weston were involved in the murders. The fact the police were focused on International from day one is insane. He gave us a little tour of Paradise Island and took us inside an enormous shipping container. My place produces about a thousand swallows each year. Really? Yeah. Look at all this. All this. this is all swallow poop. Oh my God. Yeah. This was his little sanctuary. He made his own chimes out of shackles. He also had a large sheet of titanium suspended off the ground. He grabbed an old clay coffee cup and scraped it across the surface. <laughs> what is that? Titanium. And so the friction causes a sound. It's healing, healing sound. It goes in the brain and it resonates in the brain and causes a good feeling. Try it. Sure. 
they're stirring the matrix and so there is this interactiveness going on which is called God or the matrix or consciousness. That's why you're here. You know, you created this situation. The matrix is already telling you what to do. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> what comes to my mind is catching Bo. Now he he knows that his life depends on fucking up or not. Any kind of approach I think he will sniff out right away. If one starts poking in a pile of shit, it starts smelling. People like that, if they killed before, they can kill again. The truth, other than him confessing to it, will not be easily coming. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The things that can happen musically, you're sort of jumping off a cliff. And sometimes you end up on the rocks. <laughs> Not infrequently, but sometimes you fly. The Grateful Dead got very good at flying. This is Dennis McNally, longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead, appointed by Jerry himself. 
in the band's official biographer. Jerry Garcia once said, you know how weird things can happen at the same time through no evidence. It's not necessarily cause and effect. It's just strange things happen at the same time. Well, shit, man, that's our lives. It's called synchronicity. Just as a very minor example. So the Grateful Dead went to Egypt. They came back. The month later, they played five nights at Winterland here in San Francisco. Like everybody who ever went on a vacation, they brought back slides and they had a slideshow. What we did on our summer vacation, it was a big screen above the stage. I'm there and I probably was high, but I guarantee you that this happened in real time as I'm describing it. They were playing a song called Eyes of the World and the lyrics at one point go, sometimes we ride on your horses and in exact synchronization, there's a picture of Mickey Hart, who was quite a very good rider, on a, some kind of stallion racing around the sand dunes. Sometimes we walk along, alone. The next picture is Jerry Garcia standing on the top of the Great Pyramid looking at the sunrise. And sometimes the songs we hear are just songs of our own. And the next picture is the band on stage performing in front of the pyramids. And I was sort of going, that's pretty. I mean, one is cool, two is amazing, three is ridiculous. A couple years later, I talked with Candace Brightman, who was the director of lights and anything visual was gonna be her domain. And I said, by the way, <laughs> remember that slideshow? She said, yeah. I said, you didn't pre-program anything, did you? He said, don't be ridiculous. I didn't even know what they were gonna play. And I said, of course you didn't know what they were gonna play. They didn't know what they were gonna play. It was synchronicity. Strange things happen. Magic. Grateful Dead magic, as they called it. Everyone I talked to had their own story just like this. Magical things would happen. My birthday, I was at a birthday show. I forgot that I hadn't gotten tickets yet. <laughs> was in the parking lot, tailgating, festivities, until somebody walked by and said, see you in the show. All of a sudden, I was like, holy shit, that's right. I didn't even buy tickets yet. I got to go out into the parking lot and find somebody that's selling tickets, right? You know, this is hours before the show, and this is a New Year's Eve show. This is, a, this is a, an incredibly hard ticket to get. So I said to my girlfriend, you know, she looked at me, kind of, oh my God, you know, <laughs> that's right, we don't have the tickets. Don't worry, I'll get us tickets. I was pretty confident, but not really. <laughs> I go out, I get to where I think is a strategic spot to ask for a ticket, put my finger up in the air. Look down on the ground, there's a piece of cardboard. It says, it's my birthday, I need a ticket. It was like a custom made sign, it's my birthday. And it was my birthday. I picked it up. Within five minutes, somebody drove up and the guy rolled down his window and said, no, it's not really your birthday, is it? I said, yes it is. He said, get in the car, I'll drive you in, I've got a pair of tickets. Coincidence. Or magic. Maybe a combination. <laughs> I mean, this is 100% true. I was in Alpine Valley. 60,000 people, I think, would go to this venue in Wisconsin, East Troy, Wisconsin. I don't have a ticket yet. I'm not even worried about it. And I'm walking, and I look up, and I see this thing in the air, and it's going, it's kind of just flipping in the air. I thought, God, what is that? I just grabbed it out of the air. Oh, ticket for the show. I went to the Greek shows in 85, 
I slept outside somebody's hotel room, my purse under my head. I woke up in the morning and my purse was gone. So I started spare changing and friend of a friend because we were all making friends so fast. It's like, I'm gonna go on the dead on, but you have to have $60. Well, we didn't have enough money. My friend Dave and I, we started hitchhiking 12 midnight down the end of Telegraph with our thumbs out. And out of nowhere, some guy comes running past. He goes, the bus will be here in 10 minutes. We're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and 10 minutes later, the dead-on pulled up. That guy who was running off, I don't know why, came running back and goes, let's go. And we all got on the bus and went to Alpine Valley. Whose bus was it? Randy's, the dead-on. Is that how you met Randy? Mm-hmm, yeah. Odd occurrences that don't have any evident cause. Magic. That happened all the time with the Grateful Dead. I think being in a psychedelic state makes you notice such things. The hard edges of a table start dissolving, and it's a little hard to make distinctions between where the table ends and where something else begins. And if you follow that out logically, it ultimately suggests that everything, that it's all one and it's all connected. Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Doors of Perception, said, in fact, your brain acts as a reducing valve about the sensory data that you can possibly obtain which is to say, you see a flower and it's, you know, you're enraptured. To see that on LSD is like, you know, to see the heavens. Early in evolution, if so-called caveman or Neanderthal stopped to look at that flower going, ooh, ah, a saber-toothed tiger was gonna have him for dinner. In other words, for survival purposes, you could not see all that you potentially can. Psychedelics open up the reducing valve. It's not good for walking across traffic, recommend against that, but it does allow you to see the potential of what existence and your brain could be. Jerry Garcia once said, you know how weird things can happen? Strange things happen at the same time. Well, shit, man, that's our lives. It's called synchronicity. Grateful Dead magic. Those eerie, unexplainable moments that lead to something great that are hard to explain, but nonetheless noticeable in the moment. Jarringly significant, palpable contributions to an experience, to the creation of something that is markedly better than it was before. Fans called it Grateful Dead magic. Jerry Garcia called it furious manipulation. The rest of the dead camp called it synchronicity. Whatever it was, it was intangible. But in 1970, the Grateful Dead was in need of something tangible. Record sales. In the late 60s, early 70s, major record labels could forgive a lot. Bad press, drug busts, unfavorable reviews, but what they couldn't tolerate, at least not for any extended period of time, was a series of records that didn't sell, which was exactly what Warner Brothers Records was getting out of their newish band, The Grateful Dead. Signed in 1967, the band had released four albums, two studio albums, the self-titled long player, The Grateful Dead, and Oxamoxwa, an experimental attempt that combined both studio and live recordings into a single mix entitled Anthem of the Sun, in the band's first official live album, 
live dead. Despite whatever critical acclaim they garnered, none of these efforts released between 1967 and 1969 sold enough copies to satisfy the band's record label. Their relationship with Warner Brothers was strained and further complicated by the fact that the Grateful Dead just didn't care about making money for their label. The band produced nothing in the way of a pop hit. Warner Brothers VP at the time, Joe Smith, complained about the difficulty of trying to sell radio stations on 14-minute drones with Garcia noodling along as songs worthy of radio play. Meanwhile, the band treated their trips into expensive studios as opportunities to learn about the latest recording techniques and to experiment, to improvise, and to, of course, freak out on LSD and nitrous oxide and essentially waste time. They invented new ways of blowing Warner Brothers money that was inspired. They spared no expense setting up microphones and mobile recording equipment outside in greater Los Angeles to record smog. Yes, you heard that right, to record smog. To double down, they then blew more bread by heading out to the California desert to record clean air. Again, you heard that right. Four albums of sunk costs for the label, massive debt incurred by an investment, the Grateful Dead, whose members, like I said, truly did not give a shit about making money for their benefactors. At least that's what the label thought. My opinion is that Jerry Garcia was no dummy and that somewhere deep down, there was a practical side that knew that if his band didn't deliver something that could sell soon, that Jerry and the only lifestyle he and his bandmates were equipped to live would likely end and he'd be forced off the stage and into the classroom condemned to a life of teaching rather than doing, imparting banjo lessons on middle-class brats with bourgeois ideas about cultural enrichment. 1970 for the Grateful Dead, at least as far as their musical career was concerned, was put up or shut up time. So they lit out from San Francisco and retreated to Mickey Hart's ranch in Novato, about 30 miles north into nature, the simple life. Ranch living had a profound effect on the band that dovetailed nicely with their creative endeavors. Inspired by the simplicity of this new environment, Jerry turned to his earlier bluegrass influence and injected it with the sound of Bakersfield country music, dusty and direct. Like all great country music, the new music the Grateful Dead began creating emphasized the vocal performance rather than the hard-to-sell musical improvisation of the Dead's previous recorded efforts. And there was new energy around the country storytelling in Robert Hunter's lyrics. Songs like Uncle John's Band and Casey Jones traded on traditional folk themes that were much easier to digest for the record-buying public, particularly when wrapped in the hippie imagery of the Grateful Dead, now reimagined as psychedelic cowboys, or as their version of working men, making a living for themselves, if not for their bosses. Warner Brothers smelled a hit, rightly so. The album was called Working Man's Dead, and given this new style the Grateful Dead emerged from the studio with, there was no reason not to believe that the record label could use the popular-sounding tracks on the album, particularly the lead-off track, Uncle John's Band, to not only recoup their losses up to that point, but to ultimately turn a profit. Warner Brothers poured money into the promotion of Working Man's Dead. They created slick broadcast radio spots, took out expensive ads in the trades, and even created a television commercial advertising this new surefire style from San Francisco's favorite psychedelics that promised to be nothing like their previously recorded efforts. They even sent Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter on the road to FM radio stations to gin up excitement for the soon-to-be-released first single, Uncle John's Band. It was a tricky gambit. 
Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir refused to partake in such naked commercialism, endeavoring to schmooze influential radio DJs with their on-air presence in an effort to curry favor for airtime. But somehow, Robert Hunter was convinced to do so, and his task was made more onerous by the fact that Hunter could indeed visit these stations and chat up their DJs on air about the band's new music, but he couldn't agree to playing any of that new music. At least not until the album was officially released and every station had equal opportunity to hear and play the single. Giving any radio station preference of any kind, giving any radio station exclusivity, giving any radio station the opportunity to play to their listeners new music before another radio station, that kind of exclusive arrangement was great for the station for obvious reasons, but it was a death knell for the band because it would offend every radio station in America but the one who got to play the Grateful Dead's new music first. And it would likely result in every radio station in America exacting revenge on the dead by boycotting their new music, refusing to play it and thus destroying any chance of a hit and any chance of the record company recouping their money and ultimately result in the band being dropped from Warner Brothers and likely forced to seek employment in the dreaded straight world like real working men. Yet with all of that on the line, Robert Hunter couldn't help himself. Sitting in the booth at one of America's most influential FM radio stations at the time, Boston's WBCN, Hunter somehow allowed himself to being charmed by the DJ into throwing caution to the wind and playing Uncle John's band for him right there, on air, to gazillions of listeners. Word would spread quick, kids who heard the track would inevitably dial in request to hear it again. Kids who didn't hear the track would jam the station switchboard so they could hear it for the first time. WBCN would report their playlist to the trades. Other stations would immediately get wind of the new Grateful Dead song being spun repeatedly on one station and one station only, the very hip, now very despised WBCN, and would inevitably refuse to play anything forthcoming from the Grateful Dead, and the band would be left with a regional hit rather than a national hit capable of propelling significant record sales. Hunter gave a copy of the vinyl to the DJ, who carefully pulled it from its promo sleeve. He placed the record on the turntable, lifted the needle, dropped it into the spinning groove, and then... Nothing. Dead air. The station, miraculously, at that exact moment, lost its signal, went silent, cut out. The single played, but only to an audience of two, Hunter and the DJ inside the station. Because at that exact moment the song was to ring out over the airwaves, lightning struck WBCN's radio antenna atop the John Hancock building in downtown Boston. And the interruption was brief, but long enough to shock Hunter back into reality. What the hell was he doing? He thought better of letting the DJ have a second crack at playing the song. It was the universe talking, telling him he was out over his skis, in effect, saving the Grateful Dead from themselves, preventing their lyricists from self-sabotaging the success that their new single was about to impart upon them, thus saving their recording careers and livelihood. Strange things happen. Odd occurrences that don't have any evident cause. Without this event, who knows what fate the Grateful Dead would have faced. It was synchronicity. Magic. It was another example of Grateful Dead magic. 
Lightning striking. A baby being born at a dead show, given the name Stella Blue by her parents months before birth, but somehow being born while the band played the song Stella Blue. It was the band traveling through Reno en route to a gig and passing by the Answer Man hardware store, the Golden Road Motel, and Uncle John's restaurant, all in the span of two blocks. It was images of the band randomly projected behind them on stage, yet perfectly synced to their music. It was synchronicity. Magic. I'm lying in my bed. It's morning. I'm working, listening to raw tape from our research for this podcast, trying to determine how to tie the history of the Grateful Dead to this particular part of the Mary and Greg story. I know what pain is looking for. I have an idea of what I want to say and how I want to say it. It's about synchronicity. I've had my head in Dennis McNally's A Long Strange Trip all morning, researching the Grateful Dead's concept of synchronicity, of dead magic. And now I'm listening to our interview with Dennis. It's the part where he's talking about the dead's triumphant return from Egypt to Winterland Ballroom, where the band is showing slides from their performance in front of the pyramids. Dennis is a natural storyteller. I know him well enough to tell that he's working up toward the story's payoff, an example of synchronicity. Again, I'm in bed, lying on my back, headphones on, listening to Dennis speak. I'm looking up. Dennis starts talking about dead lyrics, specifically lyrics to the dead song, Eyes of the World, lyrics written by dead lyricist Robert Hunter, he of the fortunate lightning strike. Hunter penned the words to Eyes of the World, words that I'm listening to Dennis McNally discuss at the moment, again while on my back looking up at the ceiling fan above my bed. And as Hunter's words settle in, I realize at that exact moment that my eyes are perfectly trained on the ceiling fan's manufacturer logo that says, Hunter. It freaked me out. My mind then immediately went to the last time I saw Dennis McNally in person. It was a little over a year prior in San Francisco while I was on tour in support of my book. Dennis met me at the bookstore I was doing a reading in, a reading that Dennis had graciously agreed to moderate for me. He arrived on time about 30 minutes before the guests, and he had come directly from the memorial service of a friend who passed a month earlier. And that friend was Robert Hunter. Strange things happen. Odd occurrences that don't have any evident cause. Magic. That happened all the time with the Grateful Dead. I actually have become more of a, a deadhead throughout my life. 30 years in California, it's kind of inescapable. Feeling a certain affinity to, to the music and the, and the community. I'm back with James Barnes the investigator on Ralph's defense team. It's a community that still exists today. You know, some of it's about the music and some of it's about the lifestyle. Living a life that's closer to the earth and 
simpler, you know, not complicated by a lot of the things that the rest of us think are important. And I respect that. I admire it even. Along with that counterculture comes an interest in LSD, marijuana back in the days when it was illegal. The drug element of that culture creates a subculture of people that are engaged in the manufacture and distribution of those drugs. And some of those people can be very ruthless that don't have the same moral compass that the rest of us carry around with us. There were a sufficient number of people that I contacted and sat down with and spoke with personally who shared the same belief. Quite a few people had come to the same conclusion. Once I had a group of people all saying Bo did it, once I was able to get a full first, middle, last name and a date of birth, I was able to locate him. Having not done this kind of work before, I was amazed at how much information I could get through credit bureaus about a person. I had an account and I used it. And that was how I found a lot of these people. A name and a date of birth that would get me a social security number and that would get me an address. And that's how I found Bo. I did have a straight up legitimate fear of Bo. I had enough people saying that he did this crime and they were sure of it that I definitely was fearful of him. I did not want him knowing who I was or where I was under any circumstances. I was casting a wide net and basically saying, I'm, I'm investigating the death of Greg Niffen and, and Mary Joya, and I understand that there's an alternative suspect. I was out there putting that out into the world. I didn't know who was talking to who, and I didn't know whether one of these people that I was reaching out to might not be close friends with him what would happen if he actually had committed the crime and all of a sudden he's got phone calls from people from five different directions about this guy who's out looking for him. It did make me nervous. I was pretty careful about my address. What were you particularly fearful of? I was fearful that if he had committed the crime that my reopening it, and clearly I was the one who was actively investigating this, that he might think it would be prudent to shut that down. I had a definite fear that he might come looking for me. We knew his name and his address and where he was and confirmed that he was there, and, and that's as far as we went with it. Why did nothing else happen? The only way something else would happen is if law enforcement decided to open up an investigation and pursue it. It would have to be reopened by law enforcement. Innocent or not, I'm sure it's going to be extremely disconcerting for him. He must know some people believe he committed this crime. I don't know anything about him. I've never met him. I have no idea how, if he did this or not, and I have no idea how he's processed it. If he did it, who knows how he's managed to live with that. If he did, I feel sorry for what his nights may be like. It's hard to say what the best approach would be. I'm gonna turn this one back around on you, just because I'm curious. You've got more experience with this than I have, I do believe. What are you thinking might be a good approach? The last time anyone laid eyes on Bo, he was living in a small town in Southern Oregon. But this was over two decades ago. Was he even still alive? 
And if he was, what are the odds he's still there? I could really use some Grateful Dead magic right about now. I put my detective hat on and tried my absolute hardest to find Bo. I found a guy with the same name, in the same town James Barnes found him in years ago, and he looked to be the right age, too. And according to the internet, he was still alive. My producer Mike and I made the five-plus-hour drive from Portland. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I was fucking nervous. Oh, boy. Truth. Is James here? Who? James Bowen. Oh, Jim lives, go up the driveway. It's the house right in back of this one. Thank you. Yeah, that's where he lives. Great. checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and myself, Jake Brennan. Check out my other music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis and brought to you by Cadence 13, an executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and myself. This show is produced by Mike Rooney, mixed by Cooper Skinner, music by Makeup and Vanity Set, with additional music services by Ryan Spraker, edited by Sean Cahalan, production coordination by Matt Bowden, copy edited by Pat Healy, writing assistance by Taylor Bettinson, cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Pava from the Nord Group, Chris Corcoran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Episodes drop every Thursday. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a shout out on social media with the hashtag Dead and Gone, and you might win a free Dead and Gone show poster designed by Nate Gonzalez. Thanks for your support. <laughs>